Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. A very green episode of your Red Box. Today, coming up in our big thing, we're talking about the Green Party. It's the Green Party conference this weekend. We'll speak to their co-leader about how they're actually getting on in the polls. We'll look at the polling with uh, Patrick English from YouGov. And we've got a panel explaining exactly how well the Greens are doing in Scotland and Germany. Lots of talk of greenery, of course, this week. Net Zero and COP26 and how do you power your boiler and all of that. So if you've got any questions, if you find it all a bit baffling, next week on the podcast you'll be able to hear from Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's COP26 spokesperson. Uh, and she's going to answer your questions. So if you've got a question for Allegra, it could be about anything. Why is everyone flying to Glasgow? Uh, who are the goodies and who are the baddies when it comes to uh, cutting emissions? Or uh, things close to your lives. What's it actually going to cost, the impact on your car, uh, burning coal, whatever it might be? Email me your question, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll try and put your question to Allegra next week. If you wanted to record it on your phone and email it in, all the better, because it's nice to have your voice on the radio. Uh, at times.radio if you've got a question for Allegra Stratton. You'll hear that on the podcast next week. Uh, now, though, it's our columnist panel. It's Friday, so it must be Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Um, what, have, have you got any best or worst gifts you've ever had that you want to share? All right, so I've got a very geeky one. Um, in I think it must be, it must be, I think the Christmas of 1991, I was given a big map of Europe, but it was, um, it had obviously been bought earlier in the year and was spectacularly out of date because it hadn't taken into account the fall of the Soviet <laughs> Union. Um, and, and so, um, it rather spoiled the effect. Well, I suppose you, could, you hung, on, hung on to it for long enough, it would have become a historical, uh, you know, item. Uh, what about you, Melody? Well, it, when I got married the first time in the 1980s, early 1980s, I was given, we were given two heated tea trolleys. Now, <laughs> two? Two heated tree trolleys, which, which you know, um, when you're sort of in your, in your sort of uh, late 20s, it, it, they, they don't really have much relevance. And uh, <laughs> they were sort of, they were gifts out of the 1950s, put it that way. But the ultimate irony is that now that I'm I'm um, in my sixties and disabled, sometimes a heated tea trolley could be quite useful. <laughs> For, Forty forty years later, you know. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, maybe you should have hung on to. Maybe you should have hung on to. Of yeah, course, it's been- yes. <laughs> This brilliant story today about how Boris Johnson has not bought uh, many of the if, the... if the Prime Minister's given presents, he has to pay for them if he wants to keep them, and he's not bought the bike that uh, Joe Biden gave him. Uh, my auntie's just messaged in saying, a pink and orange knitted doll toilet roll cover uh, by my mother. So I assume my gran gave that to her. Um, she'll be delighted that I've read that out. Anyway, let's get on and talk about the news. Um, let's kick off talking about what's going on in care um, there's warning of a tsunami of people without the care they need this winter unless staff shortages are tackled. Social care staff are exhausted and depleted. Um, James, this feels like something that's going to become a big political issue. There's also talk of GPs voting for industrial 
action and all the promise of extra money for the NHS and for the care system. But that's all quite, you know, sunlit uplands. That's a little way off yet. What's happening right now is a big problem, isn't it? And could become politically a really big problem. Yeah, I mean, the problem for the government is that in April, people's taxes go up to, to fund more money for going into health and social care. But if people's experience of those services don't improve, people will be like, hang on a second, I'm, I'm paying more tax, but but what am I getting for that? And that that's obviously a danger for the government. I mean, there's a particular problem on social care, which is as a country, we have undervalued social care work for a, for a very long time. Um, if you treat this as a kind of minimum wage job um, and you then get a very tight labour market, you are inevitably going to get people leaving to do other easier work. Uh, and I think we probably we probably need to have far more respect for it as a, a, a as a job, as a career than we do if we if you you know th- th- if you're going to keep people in, I mean, obviously pay is part of that, but I think it is also part of a general attitude to to the people working in the sector as well. Uh, Manu, you're obviously in Scotland. What's the picture there like? Well, I don't think it's quite as bad. I mean, I think it's bad, but it's not being uh, talked about quite as much. What I would say is that, you know, I it's quite close to home for me. I, I, I have a private carer that I, the reason I keep... I keep working so hard, Matt, so I can pay for a private carer. And, um, you love it, I, 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 I asked her about this this morning, and I said, you know, and, and she said, but the, she said, I said, I can't understand this. They're, they're going into hospitality and retail, which are horrible jobs compared to caring because you don't get to meet people and you don't have personal relationships with people. But I think, she, you know, she, she's, she's a, a woman in her 50s. And I think younger women now, or, or men going into this, they, they're not so interested in the actual caring. They're going in it for the money. And because there's more money now in hospitality and retail, they're not, they're not, they're not attracted to a job which were, which, which you kind of, you have to need some, some uh, inclination to, to be with people, to get involved with people, to actually care about them. Um, so if you're just in it for the money, you're going to follow the money. And so the answer, as everybody knows, and as, as has been trumpeted so many times, is start paying these people. It's a skilled job. Start paying them proper money. I suppose the issue is if you're, you know, if you're running a bar and you want to recruit more staff, then you, you can put the price, you know, you can put the price of the your beer up to pay the the high wages. The the problem with with care is that either you know your income hasn't gone up, but so, you know so if someone's paying privately, then you know that becomes an issue. And for the state, you know you, that money needs to come from somewhere. Um, uh, you know it's not as easy as well. You can just put up the price of the food or the drink, or whatever it is you're serving in hospitality. No, that's true. But uh, we have to find. I mean, you know, th- this is something that 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 the. Boris Johnson said quite recently, he, you know, he's fixed it. It's not fixed. It's um, <laughs> it's it's anything but fixed. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a tricky winter. I think I think this this could come back round and haunt him. Um, do you think that is is true that um, James, that the, the the prime minister's ever the optimist? I think he actually said it, didn't he? Was it during the party conference? He basically said, "I think everything will be okay in the end," which is basically his political his entire political strategy. Oh, is that a life strategy? Um, I, yeah. I think I think the danger, if you look at the if you just look at the kind of 
the the funding model for social care is I don't see the NHS ever giving up this money that it's got and and passing it on to social care, which is the yeah. whole system they've done is that they raise tax the first few years, the money goes to the NHS to clear the backlog, then it goes uh, to social care. I think this is going to be a Morton's fork argument. If the NHS do manage to clear this huge backlog, NHS bosses will be everywhere saying, look, look, look at how much better the health service is with this extra money. Why would you take it away from us? Why would you take us backwards? If they haven't cleared the backlog, they'll say, well, we haven't cleared the backlog yet. So um, you, you gave us this money to deal with an emergency situation. The emergency is not over. So why are you taking it away? I think that that's the problem. I think we need to think very differently about how we fund care. I mean, I, I've always been quite attracted to the idea of, you know, in the same way that you're auto, people are auto-enrolled in a pension. I, I think people should be auto-enrolled in some kind of insurance model um, to help provide care for them in their old age. Yeah. And actually, that's been that's been a real success. The auto involvement of pensions, um, you know, there the, the used to be a massive issue that so many people were, were basically saving nothing for their for their older age. And and, you know, it's people just seem to have quietly got on with it. Really. Yeah. 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 I totally I absolutely agree with James. I think it's we we have to start treating it as um, as seriously as we treat pensions, because it's about it's about you know, the last third of our lives, the last quarter of our lives, hopefully, for some people. But, you know, it's, it's, it isn't until you need these things that you realize just how vital they are. And, and when you're um, a, a reasonably young, healthy politician, um, you just don't get it. Yeah, no, I think that's, and also the, politics by its nature is pretty short termist, and this is ultimately one of the most long term, uh, you know, social policy areas that you can think about. Um, James, you've written about another policy uh, which has been sort of all the talk this week in your column today about the online harms bill, and uh, it was the centrepiece of Prime Minister's questions. But you think the outcome of of PMQs is more dramatic than some some might have thought when it actually happened? I mean, I think this is probably one of the most Con, uh, consequential piece of legislation this, this government will do. And Boris Johnson and PMQs basically put it on a breakneck timetable. They're doing this pre-legislative scrutiny of it that goes on until early December. And and he said to Keir Starmer, you know, look, we'll have the bill in the Commons by um, before Christmas. Now, I, I will be very surprised if that happens. I think the new year is more likely. But I still think they're determined to kind of push on with it in the, in the current context. I think they should tread very carefully, though, because I think any attempt to kind of regulate speech is inherently difficult. And I think if you want to move beyond saying that content which is illegal should be removed, I, I think you get, into, you get into very difficult territory very quickly. And I think also I think some of the ideas that are floating around this week, you know, they, they are they are problematic. For example, you know, ending online an- anonymity, something for which I would be pretty sure that there is a majority in the House of Commons. I, I think that is a very, I mean, that's a very tricky idea because if you do that, that is going to be seized upon by every dictator and every repressive regime around the world to say that they want to do the same. And, you know, frankly, we want people in Belarus to be able to communicate anonymously on the internet. You know, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the consequences of this could flow out in, in really quite dramatic ways that, that, that I think people are not quite thinking through at the moment. Um, Manny, there is this sort of um, slightly weird situation where, uh, as far as we uh, know, the internet hasn't played a huge role in the uh, uh, in the death of Sir David Amos, but suddenly the, the, he, he is, his death is being cited as a sort of reason to plough ahead with these uh, changes. 
Well, yes, and and it's terribly grave and and dreadful, but I think uh, at a slightly less tragic level, the the this um, the difficulties that the, the internet has posed and the dangers it's posed have been have been obvious to an awful lot of other groups in society. And it, it, it focuses, I mean, it all hangs on this massive dilemma. How do you protect free speech when free speech is so vile and abusive and potentially physically dangerous? And I, I you know, it, it's also now tipping into areas with misogyny. And I mean, we can look at the recent case of uh, Professor Kathleen Stock at Sussex University, and the way she has been um, she has been treated by the internet, you know how do we how do we protect uh, good people, uh, good honest people who have a point of view, and at the same time allow everybody else to to voice a minority interest? It's I, I you know good luck to them with this bill. Um, I hope they they get somewhere, but wow. I, I think well, a few one things to remember those incitement to violence is already an offence. So if you yeah. are going online threatening to go and beat somebody up or threatening to to um, to, to kind of you know, throw petrol bombs at their house or all these things, those are already criminal offences. And the, one of the things that worries me is once you start regulating speech, to, to take the Kathleen Stock case, what happens if someone says, well, I think... Uh, that, 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 that anyone stating certain biological flat facts is being, is being hateful. So we won't allow that. That, that I think, is a, is a danger on the other side of the ledger. And I think that what we need to do is be much tougher on the illegal comments that are made online in terms of getting the, the, the networks to take them down, deleting the accounts that are doing this, all of this kind of thing. But the existing law, you know, I mean, I think, I think, we, I think in, 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 in contemporary politics, there's a huge desire to create new offences rather than looking at the laws that are already on the statute books and how they can be used. And do you think, as, as a result, this is more about um, just being, you know, as it's the sort of dangerous dogs thing, you know, it, yeah. there's a big sort of new story. Yeah. Yeah, something yeah. must be done. So we'll bring forward a massive piece of legislation yeah. and have and, a big ding dong about it. And you get bad law. You get bad yeah. law. Uh, I, I mean, how do you, I'd be very interested to know how you stop these incredible, or how you try and soften these incredible social media pylons uh, when, when there is a, abuse and cancel culture and all the rest of it and, and there is absolute hatred but full short full short of uh, of physical violence and abuse and threats um, we see it on Facebook all the time in in, in, in in happens in villages it happens in communities it happens all over the all over the place um, what is the answer for that when there is this tsunami let's use this word again of 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 unpleasantness that comes out and one person is victimized by it or one belief system is victimized by it. that that to me is how do we reach that i think the answer is we all have to be kinder to each other but i don't think you can legislate kindness mm, yeah yeah, yeah. And actually, and actually, you know, like you said, if you use the existing laws to stamp out, you know, violence. Yeah, you know, I mean, as, as soon as people down and... 
as soon as people pass into the um, I am planning to, to commit X violent act to you, they have, commit, they have committed a criminal offence. Um, and I think that, I also think that the danger is once we start writing a law to say, you can't say this, you can't say that. You know, are we really, I mean, who, I mean I, I, I'm not hugely comfortable with the idea of Mark Zuckerberg deciding what the boundaries of acceptable speech are. And, but I'm also not hugely comfortable with, you know, MPs debating what precise terms are, are okay and which precise terms aren't. I mean, you know, beyond the existing law that there is about incitement to violence, incitement to racial hatred and, and the like. I think we get into very difficult territory if, if, mm. if we do that. And I think that you and I think but I think I think there is a point that, that people should realise that that people when they're on people on, online, there is a there is a kind of real person behind the keyboard. Mm. And people should be nicer to each other and we should put a much greater premium on civility. But I don't see how you can legislate for that. Uh- yeah, yeah, let's yeah. have a let's have a kindness law. <laughs> it's 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 as you know that would be bad law too because it's impossible to do. It's it's so it's this is I think this is one of our huge modern cultural problems. Melanie Reed and James Forsyth, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Up next, we're going green. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. It's not easy. Being green, having to spend each day the color of the leaves. When I think it might be nicer, yeah, I was just going to have me listen to Kermit all morning, but we can't. We can't. So we're talking about how it's not easy being green, or is it? Just a week before world leaders come to the UK to work to cut carbon emissions at COP26, and the Green Party of England and Wales are holding their party conference. So uh, what we thought we'd do was look at how important environmental issues actually are to voters and whether Green Party politics is the way for voters to push those issues forward. Uh, Later, we'll speak to a panel of reporters in Scotland and Germany, where green politics is now mainstream and in power. And we'll also speak to a pollster to find out uh, where the votes really are. But first, as their conference kicks off today, let's speak to Green Party co-leader Adrian Ramsey. Morning, Adrian. 
Good morning. So what would you, what are you looking forward to? You're looking forward to part of the conference. What do you hope to get out? Where do you hope to be uh, by Sunday night, apart from, you know, 10 points ahead in the polls? <laughs> well, we're settled for that. And we are growing in the polls all the time. We are really looking forward to welcoming members to conference, whether it's those joining online or in person. And what we want to achieve is people uh, feeling fired up at the end of the conference, ready to continue the green wave that we're seeing across the country. More and more Greens being elected, winning seats from Labour and the Conservatives alike in rural and urban areas. We've trebled the numbers of Green councillors across the country in the last few years and seen uh, big rises in our numbers of members, which is now at a record level. And really, this is now the time for the Greens. Increasingly, other parties, organisations across the board know we need to work for net zero. Everybody's saying we need to achieve that. But in political terms, the policies the government's offering are barely scratching the surface in terms of the action that we need to deliver, both to tackle the climate emergency and practical improvements that improve people's everyday lives that can go along with that. So we want to see the green policies that we've stood by for decades now implemented in time to make that all important difference and show the global leadership that you've rightly said is needed ahead of these COP climate talks. I wonder where you th- where your where do you feel like you you get your votes from? I was looking at the the latest YouGov poll for the Times today. Twelve percent of people who voted uh, Labour in twenty nineteen now say they vote Green. Eleven percent of people who said they voted Lib Dem uh, uh, in twenty nineteen now voting uh, Green. Two percent of uh, Tory voters. So is that where you sort of see your um you know you, you're try- trying to hoover up those votes from from what disaffected Labour and Lib Dem voters? Uh, Well, we certainly are getting support from disaffected Labour and Lib Dem voters. And interestingly, if you look at the pattern around the country of where those council seat gains have come from, both in the elections in May and in the string of by-elections we've won since then, yes, it does include traditional Labour areas like um, Bristol and Sheffield, where we've got um, substantial numbers of of seats that we've won, particularly from Labour. But it also includes increasing numbers of rural areas. For example, our largest group of green county councillors in the country is in Suffolk, where we've won mainly rural seats, mainly from the Conservatives. So it's interesting that, that, that people increasingly looking for that support, that interest in green policies do come from across the board. And one of the many polls that we've seen recently, you might talk to your next guest about it, was a poll of, of the so-called blue wall voters who were interestingly just as much behind really quite bold policies on climate action as uh, was the case for the population as a whole. So, you know, we and, and, and all of us in this debate shouldn't pigeonhole green support into a particular sector of the population. More and more people are backing this, including on the more bold actions. So everyone can get behind what policies to green our homes, which the government's falling way short on. But bolder policies like a, a carbon tax that can uh, tax the biggest polluters and invest the money back into green solutions, policies like a frequent flyer levy, those get strong public support as well. Um, you talk about how you've you've increased your uh, number of local councillors, working on uh, trying to get some more MPs. It's all a bit sort of uh, 1980s Lib Dems, isn't it? That you, you, you build up from the, and I mean that that's not a criticism, that's a compliment. You build up from your, your local councillors, uh, then from that you you know you build up and try and take some constituencies. Given everything that's gone on with the Lib Dems and you know they've never really recovered from having been in coalition, um, do, do you feel like the Greens are, are in a position to replace the Lib Dems as the sort of third party? 
Yes, I do. And you see many polls where we are um, sim on a similar or higher level um, to the Lib Dems. Uh, and I think that's no big surprise because, uh, as you say, we have the really strong um, campaigning record where our councillors and candidates work hard locally. And it, usually when Green councillors have elected, they're re-elected with bigger majorities. Colleagues join them in adjoining wards and we grow our representation. But what we have in addition to those strong community campaigning methods is that we have a really distinctive philosophy as a party. People know what the Green Party stands for and that our track record in promoting policies that will deliver a fairer society and one that tackles the climate emergency, those are needed now more than ever before. So I think it's, it's unlike uh, the situation the Lib Dems were in because, you know, Unlike the Lib Dems, we have a really clear set of values that people understand and that are consistent. Uh, and I think that that's why we're seeing growing support for the Green Party. If you um, look across the polls, you know, the centre left vote is being split all over the place. You've, you've got Labour on 33, Lib Dems on 9, Greens on 10. Um, if you all club together, you could easily uh, beat the, the Tories if you wanted to. Is that a conversation you've been in, you've been co-leader for a couple of weeks now? Is that a conversation you are having? Have you spoken Have you spoken to the Lib Dems and to the Labour Party about joining forces as a sort of centre left rainbow coalition or whatever you want to call it? Uh, I haven't, but um, Carla, Denia, and myself as co-leaders have made clear that. In principle, we would like to see a progressive alliance happen. There is a progressive majority of, of voters in this country. And as we see in many other countries, Scotland and Germany, you can see progressive um, parties coming together and making a real difference. So our door is open for those discussions. And at the same time, we have to be clear, they can only work if Labour gets behind the table. And it is Labour that's the, the, the barrier here. The, the Lib Dems, for their credit, have been willing to have this discussion in the past so have we, but Labour have got to be around the table. And if they're not coming around the table, if they're not playing ball, then we'll be looking to stand candidates right across the country, pushing that distinctive green message in and advancing our agenda. Does it worry that if you, if you do that and the polls carry on as they are, you'd be depriving Labour of votes and then ultimately handing more seats to the Conservatives? Well, our job is to make the case for green policies and winning support from right across the political spectrum. So, you know, I've said our doors open to discussions, but if those aren't happening, you know, you can't have a, 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 a one way deal. You can only have an agreement if, if those parties are all around the table. So uh, my job as co-leader of the Green Party is to promote our case and to work to get more and more Greens elected and make the most of the fact that we have increasing numbers of Greens in positions of real power and influence. And as you say, over the border in Scotland, in the Republic of Ireland, in Germany, in many European countries, in New Zealand, Greens are in a position of government and having that impact. And I think people are increasingly thinking this is the decade for real action on climate. Who, which parties do we need around the table to influence that? And um, we will be working to build our, our presence and impact as well right across England and Wales. So what does success look like for you uh, by the time of the next election, whether it comes 2023, 2024, how many MPs do you need to have uh, to be success? Is it whole? Is it enough to hold the balance of power in the um, event of a hung parliament? What? How? How do you replicate some of that success? Well, first of all, it's about success at all levels of government. So, continuing the trajectory of more and more green councillors and greens in position of administration on local councils. We want to break through onto the Senate. We want to see uh, green mayors elected. Um, and yes, we want to see more Green MPs in Parliament. And Carla Denia, my co-leader, is standing in one of our most winnable constituencies in Bristol, where we have strong 
councillor representation. And you don't have to look too far around the country to see those places where we've got strong councillor groups and we'll be looking to translate that vote into general election support. And yes, we know that the battle to win more MPs uh, as, as, a, as a smaller party is, is a challenge. We also know we have done it in, in Brighton. We've got a successful model there we can emulate. And uh, you know, just as there are tipping points in the climate, there can be tipping points in politics as well. And I think with the range of factors we see in this decade, growing concern about the climate emergency, people coming behind the bold action that's needed, and that the other parties are unwilling to deliver, there could be tipping points during this decade that see the Green Party um, substantially grow in support. It's really good to speak to you. Best of luck with your, your conference this weekend. Green Party co-leader Adrian mm. Ramsey, thanks uh, very much for joining us on Times Radio. Well, let's have a bit of a route round then in the, uh, in the polling. What exactly is going on in the public mood? Patrick English is Research Manager in the uh, Political and Social Research Team at YouGov. Hi, Patrick. Hello, how are you doing? Are very good. Are very good. I was mentioning there that the, the Greens are taking do seem to be taking what about one in ten votes from the Labour Party and the Lib Dems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our polling suggests that um, the rise in the Green support, they get up to about a consistent kind of nine to ten percent in our polling, is mostly coming from Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Although, as the previous guest has said, this is not exclusively so, and they are attracting support from the Conservatives as well. And if you look at the local council elections and the seats they've been winning, it's not simply the case that they're all coming from this sort of one constituency of, of voters. It's kind of quite a diverse coalition they're building, but it is more geared toward disaffected Labour and Liberal Democrat voters for sure. And um what are the what's driving that, do you think? Is it that people is is it just a sort of new protest vote uh thing? Or are people drawn to uh, the green message. How how important is green green policy, green you know concern about the, the environment? How important is that to the way that people are choosing how to vote? So I think at the minute, um, one thing we have to consider is that these polls are voting tension, right? They're not actually Westminster votes. Um, so it, it, it could be that a lot of people are saying that they're going to vote green, but then when it actually comes down to the task at the general election setting, they look at the constituency or they look at the kind of who will govern question and they don't actually vote green. But certainly if we look at the profile, the sort of sociodemographic profile of people who are saying that they're going to make this switch, it's kind of remain voting, middle class, kind of 25 to, to sort of 49-year-old degree holders. These are all people that will be kind of swayed quite a lot by a green message, a message on kind of social justice, on housing in particular, because that's a demographic that is struggling most of the minute to kind of get on the property ladder. So I think there are a lot of very, very strong appeals it's probably a bit, it's a bit more than a protest vote, but kind of when it comes to the crunch of the Westminster general election, the Green Party, as all small parties will find, smaller parties, I should say, will find, is that they're going to get squeezed. It's going to be kind of tough, perhaps, to hold on to that 10%. Uh, and what about uh, the party itself? Um, people who are actually Green Party members, I know you have done some polling of Green Party members. Mm-hmm. How do they compare to the rest of the public? Are they uh, more or less left-wing? What's the, what's, what do we know about the, the, sort of the actual Green Party itself? Yeah, well, it probably won't surprise you to know that um, for, for the Green Party, for example, if we ask them what the most important issue is, something around 90% of them say that the environment is the top issue. Now, if we ask the British public the same kind of question, they're on about just kind of about 35%, which sounds a lot less, but kind of relatively, of course, the environment is the most important issue for the Green Party uh, uh, for, for membership. But for the British public as a whole, it's, it's kind of third, it's third and fourth, but it is actually a priority. So there's kind of is that kind of shared connection there. In terms of the sort of political uh, environment, we do find that about 90 odd percent of Green members 
say that they are left-wing to very left-wing kind of centre-left, which again sounds like an extraordinary amount. It's actually very, very similar to Labour voters too, so the profile's quite similar there. The kind of the broader voter base is kind of, a, it's a bit less polarised than that, but we do find that green voters tend to be among the most kind of self-identifying left-wing. Again, though, very similar to SNP voters and Labour voters. So they're definitely on sort of that left of the spectrum and they do prioritise things like the environment, housing and um, they're less concerned about stuff like immigration uh, but I think kind of there are a lot of connections between their priorities and the British public's priorities which I guess the Green Party will be looking to tap into to build that voter support. Um, part of the reason why we want to have this conversation as well is because obviously it's a week to go to COP26 and there's been yeah. lots of talk this week about net zero and how we get and all of that. How much do people notice? Because there's no point, if nobody's noticing that conversation, there's not much use to the Green Party to try to capitalise on that. How, how much mm-hmm. are people noticing this COP26 stuff? Well, we are finding in our polling, we're regularly asking the British public now, how much have you heard about COP26? And we are finding that awareness is increasing, but a majority of people still have not heard of it. They haven't heard much at all if anything. And the amount of people that say they have heard a sort of a great deal or a fair amount is kind of around 40%. So that's a similar level of people that said they heard about Dominic Cummings giving evidence to select committees, slightly higher than Boris in his wallpaper, but lower than Matt Hancock's resignation story. So it's not something that's kind of really registering strongly in the public conscience right now, but it is steadily increasing. Another thing we're finding is that the British public aren't very... Uh, I'm very confident that COP26 is going to do anything. So that's a message I think that has to be turned around as well. Uh, and I suppose, yeah, the, 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 if the public aren't paying attention to that and uh, taking interest in it, it's difficult for political parties to exploit it. Patrick, lovely to speak to you, uh, as ever. Patrick English from the Pleasure. Pollsters YouGov. So this weekend, the Green Party conference is taking place and it's just a week to go until those COP26 climate change talks happen. So we've, been, we've, talked, we've talked to the party leader of the Greens, we've looked at the polling... Uh, but what about the politics of the uh, green po- green politics elsewhere, and what can the party in England and Wales uh, learn from them? Uh, well, Asa Samake is a uh, Asa Samake Roman, sorry, is a freelance journalist in Scotland, regular contributor to the National Newspaper. Hi, Asa. Hi. Uh, nice to speak to you. Uh, obviously, because the Greens are now in uh, power with the SNP in Scotland. Richard Walker is chief international editor at uh, Develt in Germany. Hi, Richard. Uh, hi there, Matt. And actually, it's Dodgevella DW, not DW. Oh, DW, DW. I apologise. I apologise. <laughs> That'll teach me to think for myself. And obviously, the Greens have done very well in Germany recently. We've also got Chris Venables, who's head of politics of the think tank Green Alliance. Hi, Chris. Hey, good morning, Matt. Um, uh, first of all, uh, Richard, because it's probably the one we know the, the, the least about here in the UK. Explain the place of the Green Party in German politics and their recent success and what you put that down to. Yeah, well, the the Green Party, if you're comparing to the UK, you could say that the Green Party is a bit like a combination of the Lib Dems and the Greens uh, on the UK side, um, but in a much more powerful position than really either party, really partly because of the electoral system that you have in Germany, obviously being a proportional system, you have a much more fragmented party landscape and you have a party like the Greens, which just got just under 15 percent. Uh, in the recent election, which may not sound massive, you know, compared to, say, what the Lib Dems have had in the past, but that is giving them a really big chunk of seats in Parliament. uh, And it's putting them in the most powerful position that they've really uh, been at ever in their history since uh, 1980, when when they really got started. Um, So, yeah, just under 15 percent this year was was their strongest result. 
Um, expectations, of course, were important in elections, so and they did fall a bit short of what they were hoping for. There was a period in the summer leading up to the elections where there was some excitement that perhaps the Greens would have a pull a huge upset and end up being the biggest party, even uh, uh, even have the next chancellor. They definitely fell short of that. They did fizzle, but they're still in a very powerful position with a lot of influence as this coalition building phase, which we're now in, uh, proceeds. And where are we in terms of the coalition? Um, where are we in that uh, those coalition talks? Where are we in the it's a few weeks ago? It's a month ago now, almost, isn't it? The, the, the yeah, election actually, yeah. actually took place. Where are we in the, in the timing of those? And, and what's the likelihood of the Greens ending up in power? Yeah, well, you do need some patience when covering German politics. <laughs> so the election, obviously, in late September. And essentially, first of all, there were talks about talks about talks, and then there were talks about talks, and now we're entering the talks. So <laughs> there are multiple stages where the parties essentially put out feelers among each other and say, okay, do we think we could work something out? Um, and uh, we're talking about three parties here. So it's the Social Democrats, so broadly the equivalent of la the Labour Party. Um, and the Greens and the Free Democrats, who are sometimes called the Liberals, but they're not really like the Lib Dems. The Free Democrats are a bit more like the sort of free market wing of the Tory party with a smattering of liberalism. So they're, they're a, a, a sort of a class of party that doesn't really exist in the UK system. Anyway, so we've got three, three parties talking to each other. There hasn't been a three-party coalition in Germany ever before, so it seems a complex uh, uh, situation to work out. But they've all been putting out the clear message they want to move fast. It took months last time to form an election. This time they're really saying they want to move fast, again, by German standards. So what that actually means is they're saying that they want to have a, a coalition agreement fully set up by the end of November, and they want to see Olaf Scholz, so he's the candidate from the Social Democrats, the likely replacement for Angela Merkel, uh, then to be voted in in the Bundestag and the parliament in early December. So yeah. government really fairly soon. Well, we'll wait and see what happens in Germany. But things have a bit further pro progressed in Scotland. Asa Samake, um, explain the rise of the Greens in Scotland and, and how they've ended up in, a, in, in, in power, essentially, in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So before the May 2021 uh, Scottish elections, um, um, the Greens had five MSPs and they increased that number to eight. Uh, some polls during the campaign said they would probably have more. I think I remember uh, a poll saying they could have uh, up, um, uh, nearly 12 uh, MSPs, but they have eight now. And very quickly after the election, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, said that she would seek an agreement with the Scottish Greens to form a majority government. The EFNP could have continued governing as a uh, minority government, which was the case uh, in the last legislature. But this time they decided to seek an agreement with the Greens. So it's not really a coalition. They don't want to call it a coalition because they <laughs> are agree, disagree uh, on the number of subjects. But now there are two Green ministers uh, in the government. Uh, you have Lorna Slater, who is the minister for the Greens, the Green Skills, Circular Economy and Biodiversity. And you also have Patrick Harvey, uh, who is the minister for Zero Carbon Buildings, Active Travel and Tenant Rights. So the, the Greens decided, and the SNP as well, actually, to uh, subject this agreement to the approval of their members. And it was overwhelmingly approved by the, the, the SNP members, but also by Green members. 
Yeah, I suppose the experience of the Lib Dems in coalition in Westminster is probably why the, uh, the Greens don't want to call it um, uh, a coalition there. Um, and uh, Chris Venables uh, from uh, the, the think tank Green Alliance. How do, is there any sort of threads we could pull together between all of these, whether it's Scotland or Germany or England or else, about how you make, is it about being just, you know, the smaller centre-lefty party and picking up some protest votes? Are there votes to be had in being green right now, do you think? I think definitely. I mean, as our colleague from you guys mentioned, I mean, I think an environment is top of the agenda right now. Um, and I don't think we're going to see that change if we see more extreme weather events. And with COP26, I know it's kind of not high up the agenda, but I think it will cut through over the weeks ahead. Um, so I think the Greens, as we see, are, are taking seats, albeit at the local level, in the so-called blue wall and in the red wall. Um, will they kind of make a big electoral breakthrough? Probably unlikely just because of our, our electoral system. But will they shape our politics almost certainly you know probably in the in in the same way that kind of UKIP have done or the Brexit party have done I, I think they will kind of push uh, the major parties to adopt more progressive environmental policies I think there's a question around how far that goes but I think they will make an impact and, and they probably already are making an impact that's really interesting a sort of um a, a ukip of of the environment is a really interesting space that they they might be able to occupy and i suppose um uh there's a question as well i just want to get your final take on this chris um the the government laid out its plans this week which seem you know actually quite very ambitious there's quite a lot of money being thrown around labor's policy on it so far seems to be oh we could do with spending an extra pound uh, you know, there's not, and in a way, for it to become a big sentient sort of policy issue, you need a big row about it. But actually, if the mainstream opinion of Westminster is basically the direction we should be going in, that maybe it doesn't turn into a big thing. Do you think that's right? Not sure. I mean, I mean, I think it, it, it really depends on your demographic, doesn't it? I think what we've seen is is young people over the last a couple of years really rising up and 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 cutting through. I think some of of what often is perceived as um, a, a dither and delay and, and and lots of warm words, as as Greta says, the, the, the blah blah blah. But 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 I think and, and I think what we'll see and the question is how much that kind of spreads um, and how much the British public will want to see. You know, not just kind of um you know net zero and you know let's do it you know are we going to do it but but how are we going to do it and how are we going to do it fairly and, and and i think that's the big question in front of us at this point is 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 how's it pushed forward but but i think on 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 conservative and labor i think it's right that there does need to be more of a debate you know i, I think there's a feeling you know, in seeing this in, in 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 people like steve baker that there's this kind of question around the democratic uh, uh, legitimacy. So I think if, if 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 there can be more of a debate uh, around how we do it and how we do it fairly, that's only going to be a good thing for the country and and for environmental politics. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.